0: Welcome back to Fixing the Game. I'm your host, Keir Hitchens. Last time, we discussed the farm crisis of the 1980s, the corruption and skewed economic policies that created the crisis, and the way that Field of Dreams builds a monument to the myth of the American family farm. Today, we'll take a closer look at two of the characters in the film's supporting cast, Ray's wife, Annie, and the black activist and author, Terrence Mann. In order to understand their backgrounds and what they mean for the movie, we'll examine the cultural context of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, and how they represent a broader debate about racism and patriarchy that took place during the film's production. Now, let's get started. mid-1960s, various U.S. protest movements gained some serious traction. In the South, the civil rights movement and state-sanctioned violence in response brought conversations about race to households across the country. Anti-Vietnam War protests on university campuses, including UC Berkeley, also captivated the nation's attention. All this dissent made wealthy conservatives uneasy, giving Ronald Reagan his first opportunity to spring into California's political limelight. As Michelle Reeves points out in her book, Obey the Rules or Get Out, while campaigning for Barry Goldwater, Ronald Reagan had commanded the attention of a group of wealthy and prominent Republican businessmen who liked the conservative political message of Reagan's speech, but more importantly, spotted in Reagan a natural ease and gracious manner that held the potential for immense voter appeal. With the help of those businessmen, who would later form the Friends of Ronald Reagan booster group and prompt the former Hollywood actor to enter the 1966 gubernatorial race, Reagan transformed his public persona. He had previously identified as a liberal Democrat and voted for FDR four times. In the 1966 race for governor of California, though, Reagan built his brand by cracking down on student protesters at UC Berkeley. At the core of his rhetoric was the now familiar idea that conservative family values were under attack from the left, a message he delivered extremely effectively to a crowd of wealthy conservatives at the Cow Palace in San Francisco.
1: There, a small minority of beatniks, radicals, and filthy speech advocates have brought shame on a great university. The campus has become a rallying point for communists and a center for sexual misconduct. As a matter of fact, I have here a copy of a report of the District Attorney of Alameda County. It concerns a dance. The incidents are so bad, so contrary to our standards of human behavior that I couldn't possibly recite them to you here from this platform in detail. But there is clear evidence that there were things that shouldn't be permitted on a university campus. The total crowd at the dance was in excess of 3,000, including a number of less than college-age juveniles. Three rock and roll bands were in the center of the gymnasium, playing simultaneously all during the dance. And all during the dance, movies were shown on two screens at the opposite ends of the gymnasium. These movies were the only lights in the gym proper. They consisted of color sequences that gave the appearance of different colored liquids spreading across the screen, followed by shots of men and women on occasion. Shots where the men and women's nude torsos on occasion and persons twisted and gyrated in provocative and sensual fashion. The young people were seen standing against the walls or lying on the floors and steps in a dazed condition with glazed eyes consistent with a condition of being under the influence of narcotics. Sexual misconduct was blatant. The smell of marijuana was prevalent all over the entire building. At 2 2 a.m., 2.10 a.m., an electrician had to be summoned by a custodian to cut off the power, which was the only way they could close the gymnasium and get the dance ended. This is not only a sign of a leadership gap, or not the only sign. It began a year ago when the so-called free speech advocates, who in truth have no appreciation for freedom, were allowed to assault and humiliate the symbol of law and order of policemen on the campus. And that was the moment when the ringleaders should have been taken to the scruff of the neck and thrown out of the university once and for all.
0: Reagan's fear-mongering worked. That year, he was elected governor of California and catapulted himself into the national spotlight. In the years leading up to the 1980s, economic hardship was not unique to those Midwestern farmers we discussed last time. The average American family faced some huge economic challenges. Inflation continued to grow while wages stayed the same, meaning that the instability of individual male workers' earnings rose sharply. The cost of everyday items was rising as well, and middle- and lower-class families struggled to pay their bills with only one family member's work earning an income. For most of those nuclear families, the only option was for the former stay-at-home wife to get a paying job. At the same time, though, most of those women earned significantly less for work outside the home, all while caring for the family's children and continuing to shoulder the burden of cooking and cleaning. In the late 1970s, when Kinsella was writing his novel— a woman earned about 59% of what a man did for equal work. Partially as a result of women shouldering much more of the economic burden, from 1960 to 1980, the divorce rate more than doubled. This meant that while less than 20% of couples who married in 1960 ended up divorced, about 50% of couples who married in 1980 did. No-fault divorce laws, allowing one spouse to dissolve marriage for any reason, or for no reason at all, spread to almost every state in the country. Economic hardship meant that families oftentimes reconsidered their ability to provide for more children, and to the continued dismay of conservatives, the Supreme Court codified a woman's right to an abortion under Roe v. Wade. As gender inequities became clearer, a coalition of middle- and working-class white women turned public attention to issues like the gender wage gap and women's reproductive rights, topics that formed the basis of second-wave feminism. In the eyes of conservatives, the nuclear family was crumbling, and their vision of America was going down with it. They turned to their party's new star, Ronald Reagan, and tasked him with reinstating family values in America. Reagan's presidential campaign slogans, like we talked about last time, played up his populist appeal to working-class conservatives and spoke directly to where he got his start in politics, defending family values from protesters at Berkeley. Put simply, Reagan pitched himself to white working-class voters as a steward of conservative family values who would bring jobs back to America. Reagan's message to upper-class white voters was subtly different, Not only would he defend family values, he was a pro-corporation, free-market conservative who would cut their taxes and enable rampant corruption. Field of Dreams is a direct product of that conservative perspective in the 1970s and 80s. Let's start with Annie, who is Ray's wife and the main supporter of his dream. The novel that field of dreams is based on shoeless joe was written in first person so annie is literally defined from ray's perspective in the book ray says that he came to iowa to study but quote fell in love with the land the people the sky the cornfields and annie annie's position on this list of things that ray fell in love with ultimately ties her character to the myth of the farm annie represents iowa as much as the cornfields that surround their farmhouse Like Thomas Jefferson's Yeoman Farmer, Ray and his family fall right in line with our mythological picture of America's heartland, a self-made white man who follows his dreams with the love and support of his wife. In the movie, however, Robinson chose to add some background to Ray and Annie's relationship that was more conscious of the cultural moment. Instead of meeting at a big university in Iowa, Ray meets Annie at UC Berkeley amidst 1967's Summer of Love. The two of them frequently recount their fond memories of protesting, smoking weed, and hanging out on campus in the 1960s. Throughout the movie, Annie acts as a representative of that protest movement. Though she was born and raised in Iowa, her personality runs entirely against the Iowa grain. She's a fiery, independent woman who does not shy away from standing up for what she believes in, and she hearkens back to her time at Berkeley whenever she gets the chance. Annie is supposed to embody second wave feminism, The anti-war movement and every other part of the protest movement just like ronald reagan phil alden robinson portrays the unrest in the 1960s and 70s as one big protest movement but that was never the case as we know there were many separate and sometimes conflicting movements going on conflating second wave feminism with the civil rights movement purposely hides the fact that second wave feminism was racially segregated This feminism had its foundations in the suburbs, as white women demanded equal rights to white men. Gloria Jean Watkins, a black feminist scholar who wrote under her grandmother's name, Bell Hooks, put it this way, If the white women who organized the contemporary movement towards feminism were at all remotely aware of racial politics in American history, they would have known that overcoming barriers that separate women from one another would entail confronting the reality of racism. And not just racism as a general evil in society, but the race hatred they might harbor in their own psyches. At relatively the same time that white college students like Annie and Ray were doing drugs and hanging around in public parks, 25-year-old John Lewis led the march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, where police brutally beat him and other protesters within an inch of their lives. Annie and Ray never engage with the topics of race or racism, just an amorphous protest movement that the movie's only black character, Terrence Mann, happens to be a part of. Instead of addressing the segregated reality of the 60s, Phil Alden Robinson chose to completely defang the politics in the movie. When discussing her motivations, Annie gestures vaguely to the 60s. The only specific policy she protests is their local public school banning one of Ray and Annie's favorite books. Instead of taking the chance to dig deep into the cultural context of book banning, Robinson immediately used this debate as a plot device. The book that had been banned was written by Terence Mann, the fictional black activist and author played by James Earl Jones. Instead of focusing on Annie's strong protest, this scene is where Ray realizes that Mann is the one he must track down. As Annie recounts her protest, Ray ignores her, his eyes glazing over. Then, he immediately redirects her energy back to his quest. The moment is over, and Annie must return to the role of supportive, subservient wife. Instead of actually including her in his quest, or even pausing to consider how pursuing it might impact their family, Ray leaves Annie at home to deal with the real-world consequences of his fantasy. As a reminder, that fantasy involves risking their home, livelihood, and future, so he can follow instructions from a godlike voice in his head. What does that voice say? First, to plow under their only source of income, spend their savings building a baseball field whose sole guest died in the 1950s, and then abandon his family to kidnap a prominent author, with no indication of what comes next. With Annie now running the entire farm on her own in the face of foreclosure, Ray drives to the writer's home in the Northeast, and kidnaps him after failing to convince him to help with the mission. In Shoeless Joe, the original novel, Ray kidnaps the author of The Catcher in the Rye, J.D. Salinger. In real life, Salinger hated his depiction in the book. He was a profoundly private person, and wanted nothing to do with W.P. Kinsella or his novel. When talks of turning the book into a movie got serious, Salinger made it very clear to Robinson and the rest of the film's producers that he would sue them if his likeness ever made it to the script. For that reason, Robinson opted to write a new character to take Salinger's place. Terrence Mann who represents the most significant change to the novel's story. Played by the legendary James Earl Jones, Mann is a fictional black leader of the protest movement in the 60s. Mann's childhood dream was to play with Jackie Robinson at Ebbets Field, which is one of the reasons that Ray goes to find him. Strangely, Mann never speaks directly to the issue of racism, nor does any other character. The film is based around giving second chances to baseball players who have passed away, but somehow no one ever stops to consider that some of the greatest baseball players of all time never got a chance to play in the major leagues. There is no recognition of the fact that segregation in baseball led to the existence of the Negro Leagues, which rivaled the MLB in terms of competitiveness. In more than 400 exhibition games between Negro League teams and teams of MLB players, the Negro Leaguers won more than half of the games. Still, every baseball player brought back to play on Ray's Field is white. Even Jackie Robinson, who died in 1972 and is supposedly Terrence Mann's childhood hero, does not get the call to play on Ray's Field. Adding insult to injury, Phil Alden Robinson charged Mann with some of the film's most sweeping, elegiac lines about baseball in America. When Terrence first arrives in Iowa and witnesses long-dead Major League stars like Shoeless Joe playing on the field, he says, It's unbelievable. Looking out over the field absent of any black players, Ray replies, It's more than that. It's perfect. In that moment, Phil Alden Robinson turns both Terrence Mann and James Earl Jones against the civil rights movement. Instead of dreaming of a fantasy world where black players can just play alongside white players, Phil Alden Robinson hands James Earl Jones and his character the task of filling the audience with nostalgia for a bygone era of white greatness.
1: The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. America has ruled by like an army of steamrollers. It's been erased like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again. But baseball has marked the time. This field, this game, is a part of our past, Ray. It reminds us of all that once was good, and it could be again.
0: Through the movie, there is one glimmer of hope. Ray and Annie's daughter, Karen. In the book, Ray is initially afraid to share his field with her. He says, Karen will surely be drawn to the lights and the emerald dazzle of the infield. If she touches anything, I fear it will all disappear, perhaps forever. This phrase, though seemingly benign, echoes the sentiment that kept women off of the baseball field and out of the workplace until World War II mandated widespread female employment. In the novel, Karen proves Ray wrong when she comes out of the house, sees the field, and recognizes that his dream is turning into a reality. She stays with Ray as he talks to Shoeless Joe for the first time. This moment allows Ray to share baseball with Karen the way that his father shared it with him. In the movie, though, Phil Alden-Robinson undercuts Karen's role in this moment, and Karen never joins Ray and Joe on the field. When Shoeless Joe wants to hit, Ray asks, Don't we need a catcher?" Which I read as an attempt to include Karen, as she and Annie are the only people available. Joe replies, Not if you get it near the plate, we don't, and shuts the attempt down. Karen and Annie stay in the house, and Annie offers to put on some coffee for Ray's guest, fulfilling the role of dutiful housewife. Painfully, Robinson wrote the line so that Annie calls Joe Shoeless Jack, reinforcing the idea that Annie cannot know anything about baseball, even though this is the man that Ray built his field for. Regardless, Ray still bonds with Karen over baseball in the movie, and that's why a generic feel-good girl power moment would fit right into the movie and its moment in history. For a second, I'd like to imagine what that scene might have looked like. In one of the games that Karen and Ray watch together, there are a pair of newcomers on the field. On the mound, there's a 17-year-old girl with the same style of uniform as the others, but she's small and throws the ball with some serious oomph. Karen, perceptive as always, asks Ray, wait, who's that? She's got a good fastball. Ray replies, that's Jackie Mitchell, Legend has it she struck out Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig in consecutive at-bats during an exhibition game. As they talk, Shoeless Joe meanders to the plate. Jackie strikes him out with ease, to the cheers of Ray and Annie. Joe, sheepish, says if Bustin' Babe and Larry and Lou couldn't do it, then I guess I can't either. I can see Karen, who then turns to Ray to ask, Is it true? And he could reply with a simple yes. The next batter, maybe Mel Ott, makes contact with the ball, but only hits a dribbler to second base, where an older, darker-skinned woman fields it and throws him out at first. That's Tony Stone, Ray could say, as he turns to Karen. She was the first woman to play in the Negro Leagues. Karen's eyes would light up again, and the story would progress with a spot for her carved out in it. The scene would also shed some light on those baseball stories we don't hear very often, in particular those of female players. Though many baseball fans never hear about it outside the context of World War II, women have played baseball since the game's inception, often alongside men. As I mentioned in that imaginary scene, Tony Stone did something in the Negro Leagues that has yet to take place in the MLB, breaking the gender barrier. Stone was one of professional baseball's greatest female players, and a Midwesterner to boot. Born in 1921, Stone played baseball for decades, starting off in sandlots around Minnesota. By 1937, she was playing for a semi-pro team, the Twin Cities Colored Giants. After another 15 years of semi-pro ball, Stone signed with a Negro League team, the Indianapolis Clowns, becoming the first woman to ever do so. At first, her signing was regarded as a publicity stunt. According to the July 1953 edition of Ebony Magazine, though, while most sports fans were sure that the clown signed Tony merely as an extra box office attraction, the young lady has surprised everybody by turning in a business-like job both at second base and at the plate. In her first game against a semi-pro team in Elizabeth, North Carolina, she walked and then drove in two runs with a sharp single. No woman has ever played in Major League Baseball, though many, like Stone, have had more than enough talent and skill necessary to make baseball their career. Like I mentioned in the scene, Jackie Mitchell garnered some national attention after she struck out two of the greatest MLB players of all time, Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, in a 1931 exhibition game. This is a chance to mention one of our story's true villains, right alongside Ronald Reagan, Kennesaw Mountain Landis. For the most part i'll leave my criticism of landis for the next episode but this connecting thread is too strong not to tug on landis was the federal court judge who served as baseball's first commissioner until his death in 1944 it was his virulent racism and misogyny in part that kept both the color and gender barriers intact through the 30s and 40s after reading some reports of that 1931 exhibition game landis was appalled he quickly banned jackie mitchell and all women from baseball citing that he considered the game too strenuous for women. Landis also shut down multiple attempts by major league teams to hire a black player. Throughout the 1930s, the struggling Pittsburgh Pirates were in search of a competent catcher. As Neil Sullivan put it, a few men held the position for a few years, but none of them added much to the Pirate attack. All the while, Josh Gibson, one of the greatest catchers of all time, was in another part of town, playing for the Homestead Grays. The Pirates organization was open to signing Gibson, since he was not only an incredible catcher, but could hit the ball like nobody had ever seen. During a Negro League game at Yankee Stadium, Gibson once hit a ball so far that by some accounts it flew completely over the left field bleachers, more than 575 feet. The longest home run Babe Ruth ever hit at Yankee Stadium, or the house that Ruth built, was also 575 feet. However, Landis would not hear any of it, and made it clear that no black man would play in the MLB while he was commissioner. Josh Gibson died in 1947 without ever playing for a Major League Baseball team. Sadly, the scene connecting Jackie, Tony, and Karen only exists in my imagination. It's not just unfortunate that the movie excluded black and female characters from the limelight. It's intentional. For Phil Alden Robinson, including real black or female characters on the baseball diamond would have meant dealing with baseball and America's intertwined racist misogynistic histories, something that goes against every conception of the conservative family values that the movie worked so hard to preserve. In his book, Cooperstown to Dyersville, Charles Springwood explored the topic of family values after asking some visitors to the real-life movie set why they liked the film. One woman visiting Dyersville tapped directly into the cultural context of the time, saying, The life Ray Kinsella and his family lived was a simple, comfortable life, close to the land and hard work. The world today, especially in the cities, is so complicated, and there is so much crime. However, as Springwood points out, Ray does precious little farming and actually risks his family's farm and livelihood to pursue his own dream. Also, his family's life is not particularly simple or comfortable to begin with they face losing their home amidst the farm crisis that Ronald Reagan's pro-agribusiness policies helped to exacerbate. However, I agree that Ray's fantasy provides an escape from the city where life is complicated and there is so much crime. Taken in the cultural context of the 80s, the lack of crime in rural Iowa is a thinly veiled allusion to the film's racial homogeneity. It's uncomplicated because none of the few black people or women request equal treatment, and there's no representation for indigenous people or members of the LGBTQ community at all. Another visitor to the movie set, a pastor who brought his entire youth group, stated things a little more bluntly. What could be more healthy and innocent than driving up to a baseball field to play a game? We just had to see the field because the movie was so special. It was instilled with family values and a respect for history. Taken in the broader context, the movie obviously works to reinstate conservative family values, a term that serves as a dog whistle for racial and gendered segregation. By co-opting the Berkeley protest movement in the name of a story segregated by gender and by race, the film creates a monument to Ronald Reagan's America, without ever mentioning his name. I hope you enjoyed the second episode of Fixing the Game. Stay tuned for episode three, in which we'll revisit the intersection between labor and race in America, and examine the 1919 Black Sox scandal through a new lens. See you next time.